Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm Dave Gebro. And I'm Joe Kennedy. Yeah. Now, back to business. Enough of this. That was a quick uh, back that, to business. <laughs> yes, we were already on business. We never got off it. <laughs> I hate the digressions we have on this show. <laughs> first things first, you need to know just how seriously we take all this. Uh, discography is heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears and we don't just cover albums we cover every last uh, crumb and you know morsel that was uh, expunged by the record company to soak up your well-earned dollar um, all releases are uh, rated and reviewed um, on a zero to five star scale and that allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. And it actually glows if you squint. This one glows. It does. Uh, today on Discography, we will be turning the spray cans on The Replacements. Drunken punks, shredding pages from the classic rock playbook, turned singer-songwriter asshole swapping out his band for session man replacements. But before we go any further, Today we've got a very special guest here with us in the studio of our collective imagination. This guy is the music critic for the Commercial Appeal and a longtime correspondent for Mojo Magazine, which on a side note, makes my heart skip a beat whenever an issue is unceremoniously and indelicately stuffed inside my mail slot. He's produced a series of, archi of archival releases for the replacements, including For Sale Live at Maxwell's 1986, the acclaimed box set Dead Man's Pop, and the deluxe reissue of Please to Meet Me. Most importantly, this guy wrote Trouble Boys, the ultimate replacements bio based on a decade of research and hundreds of interviews. Having ingested this whopping tome, I can assure you that it is far more compelling and in-depth than your run-of-the-mill band bio. Aforementioned guy also was nominated for a Grammy for his album notes for Dead Man's Pop and has also written essays for releases by The Kinks, Warren Zevon, the Dixie Chicks, Al Green, and many others. A native of Los Angeles, but that long-distance operator gave him Memphis, Tennessee. Please, will you refrain completely from assisting me in welcoming fellow music obsessive Bob Mayer. Boy, that's quite an intro. Probably the best one I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, our guests, wrote, our, guests always, our guests always say that. Dave's really yeah, good. Yeah. He's got a way with the intros. <laughs> if your book sucked, it would have been... Here's Bob Mayer. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't be, yeah, I, I just can't fake it. So uh, obviously you love the replacements. What, what do they mean to you? I mean, if you strip away all the, you know, detail obsessed, uh, you know, all the stuff that you put in the book at heart, what do they really mean to you? Well, I mean, it's hard to explain that at this point because they've kind of taken on so many different sort of forms and meanings in my life. You know, I spent about 10 years uh, working on the book essentially from the first germ of the idea to to researching it, writing it, and publishing it, and then you got to promote it, and then it's kind of carried on into the uh, work I've done with the band's catalog and various other things. So, like at this you, point, you were you were how old when you discovered them? Well, the the first thing was just seeing them on Saturday Night Live, and it was such a shock, uh, particularly in the context of the time, to kind of see a band that was so unpolished, so loud, so unkempt, so strange. You know, in the in the sort of era of, you know, big 80s, big hair acts, real sort of video centric things where there was a kind of sheen to everything and a, and a, and a, and a polish <laughs> to how people presented themselves. And, you know, if you look at that Saturday Night Live performance, I mean, they really do look like they just rolled out of bed or rolled yeah. out of the bar. And, uh, 
so for me, it was kind of uh, just a, a sort of shock because it seems so strange. You know, Paul missing cues on the mic, Bob falling down. Even the second song, uh, they had to start it, you know, count it off again because they screwed up the intro. I mean, you just never saw that on, uh, you know, TV at the time on Solid Gold or on MTV or anything yeah, like yeah. that. So it was particularly, I think that's what grabbed me, you know, about them, got my attention. I didn't really know, like I say, the music or who they were until a couple of years later when I was entering that, you know, sort of teenage years. And we'd, by that point we moved to Arizona and I was maybe 12 going on 13, 13 when I would have gotten my hands on Please to meet me, which is the first real music of theirs I had or heard. And so, you know, and that album in its way is probably their most complete, I think. And so it was fairly accessible, whereas maybe some other parts of their catalog wouldn't have been or seemed as accessible to a 12, 13 year old. Yeah. But that record was pretty, you know, it certainly had a kind of uh, a sound that made it, you know, very easy to understand. So for, that for was your, that was kid. kind of your entry point was 87. The, the 87, please yeah. meet me. That was my entry point. And then it sort of just grew over the years. Uh, like a lot of things, you kind of work your way backwards and you get older. And it wasn't an immediate thing. Probably wasn't until I was again in high school a couple of years later. By that point, Don't Tell a Soul had come out. And that was really mm -hmm. the height, height of their sort of popularity or awareness, you know, the, the popular culture awareness. So you'd see them on MTV. So it didn't seem so strange. You know, they weren't this sort of odd band I'd see just on TV the one time. Yeah. And again, you have to remember, there's no internet, there's no whatever. It And, and, and sort of being a 13-year-old kid in Arizona, I didn't really have access to cool record stores at that time or anything. So it was kind yeah. of... You got whatever you got, however you got it, whether it was TV or the odd newspaper thing or, or a zine or something like that. I know they they cross I crossed paths with them. I was a fourteen year old in, in nineteen eighty six, and it, it felt like the perfect age for me because every I was just starting to become like you know I guess more of a drama queen I suppose emotionally. <laughs> and uh, I, my uh, a friend of the pod Rick had a, a good friend of mine growing up. He had a vinyl copy of Tim, and so it, that's an odd entry point, but. Uh, you know, along with that comes, you know, very quickly, let it be and whatnot. And, and uh, um, when I graduated high school, it was all shook down. So I felt like I grew through it all with them. Joe, what about you? Well, I'm the same age, roughly. Well, I'm the same age as Dave. And I think we're a little older than Bob, right? A few years older. Uh, I'm born yeah. in 72. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, I did not get into them until later, though, because as we've mentioned on the podcast many times, I had bad taste in music <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> so I do remember seeing them on SNL, though, and thinking that they were kind of like a joke band, sort of. Like, it kind of seemed like they were kind of like a bit like they would be on like Dr. Demento or something. Right. They, I could have sworn that the song was kiss me on the butt. <laughs> I was a real, I, I was a real idiot. That's a great Mondegreen. Yeah. Right. Um, so it wasn't until later that I went to college and started getting into good music. And, um, I think I probably read some reviews in the Rolling Stone record guide. And mm -hmm. I, I think Rolling Stone record guide, I'm pretty sure gave please to meet me five stars. And so I started with that one. I remember buying that at like the student center at, at, at the college. And then I was just obsessed with that record and um, did the same thing. Went on, you know, kind of listened to everything. Um, but they were kind of already done. At, I, I didn't really, it was not a fan of them when they existed until, you know, they were already over by the time I really discovered how great they were. Yeah. And w I saw them live, but it was on the uh, All Shook Down tour. Right. So it was, it was like on the... But, but then as, as a young adult, like a 20-something adult... Um, I kind of uh, went through a period in my life where I was obsessed with like heartbreak kind of songs and like songs that I felt like really, re I really re related to as like the sort of lonely person at that time. And so a lot of these songs are really super highly personal to me like, and, and come to, you know, or really define that time for me. 
I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm like 25, 26 or so. So I, I think, you know, especially Bob can <laughs> definitively agree that even though there is a truncated discography at play here, that we are dealing with a band uh, that has quite a lot to chew on. So uh, there's, there's tons to talk about. The, the honest truth is, as I was battling murderous Los Angeles, Los Angeles traffic to get to the studio, my heart was pounding because I desperately do not want to do this band a disservice. <laughs> Bob, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so we're going to do a little segment here called The Run-Up. And that's going to uh, get us to the first recorded works by the band as quickly as possible uh, for the sake of discography. Bob, I, I do invite you, uh, Eva, I've bullet noted everything, but you know, please feel free to jump in and tussle uh, if you feel like I've overlooked a key component, okay? Can I jump in? Sure. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry that I only invited the, the historian of the band <laughs> to do so. All right. It's Minneapolis, 1978. 19-year-old Bob Stinson gives his 11 year old brother Tommy a bass guitar to keep him off the streets. That year Bob also meets Chris Mars, a high school dropout. With Mars playing guitar and then switching off to drums, the trio calls themselves Dog Breath as one does, and cover songs by Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, and Yes without a lead singer. Hmm, maybe they don't even need a lead singer. So one day this dude named Paul Westerberg is walking home from work. He's just some janitor who works in Senator David Durenberger's office, simply minding his own beeswax when he happens upon a wonderful racket emanating from deep within the bowels of the Stinson house. Color him impressed because Westerberg starts regularly listening in after work. Mars knew Westerberg and eventually invites him over to jam. Dog Breath auditions a bunch of vocalists, including a hippie who reads lyrics off a sheet. The band eventually finds a guy, but Westerberg wants to be the singer, and so he takes the guy aside one day to tell him the band doesn't like you. Westerberg soon replaces him. Before Westerberg joins, Dog Breath often drink and take all kinds of drugs during rehearsals, playing songs almost as an afterthought. In contrast to the rest of the band, the disciplined Westerberg appears at rehearsals and in neat clothes and insists on practicing songs over and over again, getting them perfect. He hijacks the basement boys to carry out his nefarious rock and roll deeds. After the band discovers the clash that jammed the damn the buzzcocks at all, Dog Breath changes their name to The Impediments and plays a drunken performance without Tommy at a church hall gig in June 1980. After being banned from the venue for disorderly behavior, they change their names to The Replacements in an unpublished memoir Chris Mars later explains the name, like maybe the main act doesn't show, and instead the crowd has to settle for an earful of us dirtbags. It seemed to sit just right with us, accurately describing our collective secondary social esteem. Phase one, classic rock punks, 1980 to 1982, and we start with the 1980 demos, guys. All right. So, hey, Bob, I think maybe I, we might want to talk now a little bit about the Stinson household and how that kind of shaped the identity of the band, particularly in the years when, you know, when Bob was in the band. Yeah, I mean, uh, Bob had been sort of, uh, well, first of all, let me just say that was, a, that was a pretty good summary. The part where Paul was insisting in uh, rehearsing and them repeating songs uh, diligently might be a slight exaggeration, although <laughs> it is fair to say early on 
uh, he definitely brought a kind of direction to the band because I think, you know, there was a sense of desperation both on his end and Bob's that, you know, to get out and up from the sort of lives that they were destined to, which were probably going to be various forms of manual labor. But, um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, Bob had basically come back after years away in the juvenile system, you know, juvenile jails, group homes, that kind of thing. Uh, And by the way, this is literal dog breath, right? This is not a Zappa reference. No, I think I, I don't. I, I don't know where that. We never quite figured out exactly where that reference came, but it seemed like it was something that would have been much more uh, of off the cuff than some deep zap. I figured, yeah. I figured. Uh, uh, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, basically, he formed Bob formed the band, or he came out of group home with a, a buddy of his, a guitar player named Bob Flemmel, and their intention was to start a band. They were looking for other guys to play, and lo and behold, Tommy Stinson was getting into trouble as an 11, 12-year-old, and Bob put a bass in his hands, and thus sort of began the band with the two Bobs, Bob Stinson, Bob Flemmel, and Tommy Stinson, and then eventually Flemmel kind of faded out, Chris Mars came in, it was the three of them with some, you know, people sitting in, singers here and there, but really kind of just um, uh, the three of them, or occasionally the four of them, Bob Flemmel, just floundering away, you know, playing parties at at, uh, friends' houses or keggers or, or where, you know, buddies of Bob where he worked at this uh, restaurant and nothing was really happening and you know at the same time Paul's kind of doing his own thing as a lead guitarist chasing chasing the rock star dream but not really getting anywhere in suburban Minneapolis or south Minneapolis and playing with a bunch of suburban people and as you say he was working as a janitor here's this racket and sort of see hears and seizes his opportunity you know pretty faded kind of scenario what is that was do you know offhand what the length of time is from the first time he heard the the guys playing to when he it was approached? a it was a few months uh he was he was basically passing you know from his janitor job back home sometimes he would walk sometimes he'd take the bus and then walk uh and he would pass this house which is actually different than the uh, famous Let It Be house. It was on the same street, mm-hmm. but but it was a previous house. It was sort of set off far from the street, but he was, Paul was just sort of amazed at the sheer balls of a band to play that loud, you know, in the neighborhood. I'll tell you one thing that, you know, whether you're a fan or not a fan of Paul Westerberg, one thing you got to hand it to him is the guy was a self-conscious mythologizer. He definitely knew his way around a rock and roll myth and knew how to make it stick. Yeah, and he he had kind of... Uh, studied that uh, in a sense after he dropped out of high school he did a lot of reading you know rock magazines rock bios showbiz magazines about bar you know books about pt barnum and stuff like that so he kind of had a sense uh, in in a in a in a kind of funny way about showmanship about mythologizing about what critics liked about what people were attracted to you know a certain element of danger of unpredictability uh and so i think you know he kind of poured a lot of that into um, what he was doing with the band and what the band eventually became. You know, so, so there's some people that sort of joke that it was a sort of 12-year performance arts project on Paul's part. You know? yeah. And also about just writing songs that came from a heartfelt place and that meant something to him, like writing these kind of confessional songs. I think that's something he realized early on. I don't, I don't have to write these punk rock kind of songs that are about like, you know. And, and punk was such a pose, too. Yeah, and what, like a lot of people, I think Paul, the reason the songs were so effective as kind of... Uh, emotional conduits or whatever is because, you know, he didn't share that stuff with anybody else, including the band. And so it all got poured into the music, all got poured into the lyrics, all got poured into the songs. And so I think that's why there's a a real power and truth to, you know, what he was doing as a songwriter when they were starting out, you know, it was more, you know, as you say, this first couple of years in a kind of punk vein, but eventually and very fairly quickly, he grew out of that and needed to express things that were a little bit more serious or mining deeper feelings. And, 
And it was the only place for him to do that. You know, these guys were Midwestern guys. They didn't talk. It was still the 70s. They were basically, you know, kids of the greatest generation kind of thing. So culturally, it was the world was in a different place in addition to being, you know, basically blue collar, Midwestern, Catholic, you know, every kind of element of emotional repression that you can imagine yeah, yeah. Uh, was was sort of straitjacketing them as people. But somehow they they transformed or transmuted what they were repressing into this into this music and into the power of the band. Yeah, thank God, thank God for the power of sublimation because uh, <laughs> you know soon you know, in in the spring of 1980, uh, the band hands off a four song demo tape uh, that they made in uh, Chris's basement and they give it to Peter Jesperson. Uh, Jesperson was the manager of Aura Folk Jokopus, which, uh, if you ask me, is kind of a middling Roy Harper record, uh, but still a great title. Well, it's Aura, Skip Spence. Aura or. is a great album. Right. Folk, uh, yeah, the Roy Harper, Harper record, not a big fan. Uh, yourself, Bob? Uh, I like I like Or the Roy Harper record, it's, you know... Right. It's not my favorite, but but it's a pretty awesome. good name for a record store. It's a great name for a record yeah, store. Yeah, it is a great name for I a record store. I wish I could go store. hang out there right now. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so uh, we're in Minneapolis. Uh, Peter Jesperson is listening to this tape, and it's almost uh, like a spit take sort of Yeah, the, so the 1980 demo that they made in the basement, you know, I got to say, they already play really great. They already, yeah. you know, they really had it. They're good musicians, you know, so... There's an interesting thing there that um, on the recently released uh, box set version, expanded deluxe box set we did of Sorry, Ma, uh, Forgot to Take Out the Trash, we actually for the first time put on a previous demo, which is really the first recording the band made, uh, and there's several songs on there from that, and that is like kind of Paul bringing his old, you know, songs, songs from before he met the Stinson's Chris Mars, uh, or, you know, started playing with them, and it's recorded in a way that's you know, it's it's a little more conventional, a little more rock and roll. Still has some really great sort of pop sensibility to it, but it's not the replacements quite yet. And within right. a couple of months of Paul meeting those guys, playing with them, the chemistry happening, and him sort of writing new songs that were really more tailor made and and uh, kind of bespoke. Yeah, no, no kidding. I mean, talk about writing to the band's strengths. I mean, right. it, it, it I think amazing. he figured it out pretty quickly and. And so, you know, there's a kind of jump that you can hear on that box set. But when you talk about that first four songs that, that, that you know, so it wasn't exactly there right out of the gate. It took it took really uh, Paul kind of really writing for the band for 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 the the thing to really come together and coalesce. But it does on those first four songs. And like you and, said, and Peter, I, th I think there's a misperception. Uh, you know, I think the misperception is that uh, the first album and Stink, they kind of get lumped together as the punk era. But to yeah. me, this is rock and roll and Stink is punk. Uh, and Raised in the City, that's pure straight up rock and roll. Yeah. At the moment it starts, this is just killer traditional rock and roll and a plus it's not of archival interest this is as good as they ever got you're talking about the demo yeah raised in the city shape me yeah. or shape up don't turn me down and shut up you can see what peter jesperson uh, responded to it, it does have a really kind of explosive kind of quality they just play great and they have great energy yeah and it's kind of a take on punk that was kind of unique even they don't really sound directly like anything else, really. Yeah, and it's funny because we even after ten years of researching it in again for the box, that there is no one hundred percent definitive take on where that was recorded. It was definitely recorded in a different place than the first demo, but it's just interesting. It's it's 
it's a really good, you know, relatively speaking, a good recording in that it, you really get the sort of 360 of the band, the dynamics, mm-hmm. and 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 Paul's vocals, and it's just a you know incredible performance of what would be many incredible performances that they would basically record to to make that first record over the next year. Also, the, also the very special thing about all this material is that even though Paul is writing all these great songs, somehow it's still Bob's band. It's mm. definitely, it feels like it's still Bob's band, and, and, but yet it doesn't feel like there's a tension between those two elements yet. No, not a, not a negative tension. I think what's there is this, this, the, the kind of, you know, like all bands, when you sort of discover that you have this power amongst the, few, the four of you, this kind of alchemy that only exists uh, when you play together, um, there's something really inspiring about that. And so I think in a way they were sort of, not only getting positive reinforcement early on from Peter, you know, and, and frankly, none of them had really had much positive re- reinforcement in any way in their lives. Mm-hmm. So I think that really, you know, sort of uh, propped them up and, and buoyed yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, he, I was, it, he wasn't just supportive. He was agog. I mean, he yeah. said when he listened to the tape, uh, if I've ever had a magic moment in my life, it was popping that tape in. I didn't even get through the first song before I thought my head was going to explode. Right, right. Uh, well, you know, and and like I say, I think, uh, I think it's there is actually a kind of tension in terms of the guitars because Bob and uh, Paul were very different guitarists in how they played. I mean, it's interesting because Paul had been a lead guitar player and he sort of became a rhythm guitar player, although he was always a very great rhythm player. And I mean, he is probably a, a very underrated rhythm guitarist in general. And so did he? Did he roll. take a back seat, or did he? Well, because, yeah, because I, of Bob. Yeah, because well, I think he also wanted something else. He wanted to be the singer, songwriter, rhythm guitarist sort of leader, and so he took on that role. I mean, basically, he was working with what he had, and what he had with Bob was this guy who could play these really sort of incredible leads, wild, unkempt, you know, fearless, basically, which is something that Paul admired in him. And so he sort of slotted into that. I mean, certainly, there's nothing. So yeah, that, those those wandering leads are just insane. How did he yeah. How did he learn that style? Uh, well, you know, it basically is two main influences. Bob's were uh, Johnny Winter and and uh, Steve Howe from Yes. And if you kind of listen closely, uh, you, that's that really is the foundation of yeah. Bob's style. So He's doing funny. a lot yeah. of stuff like like Johnny Winter did. He had a, a big sort of blues based sound but also sort of very idiosyncratic, even within the blues, the way Johnny Winter was. But then he had these sort of noodly, really fast, sort of high-low, yeah, just a kind of almost atonal quality that, yeah. that, that, that Steve Howe would play, neoclassical, whatever. I mean, when you listen to, to Bob's playing, it is these sort of twin poles of influence in terms of Winter and Howe, you know, amongst a million other things. The, the thing about both Bob and Paul is they were real, and Tommy and, and even Chris to an extent, you know, they were really musical sponges and, and incredible memories and l- deep listeners. And, and Bob in particular was a microscopic listener. I mean, he would just needle drop, needle drop on every little bit and, and piece of, of songs and records. So they were obsessive, like all great musicians, I think, are. Yeah. And so. I mean, he was uh, also, you know, preternaturally talented. I'm sure yeah, even without I mean, so, any rehearsal. So you've got this kind of uh, Johnny Thunders, Walter Lure. Keith Richards, you know, going back to Chuck Berry, you know, via John Lennon thing in terms of Paul's rhythm playing, uh, but with a real foundation in blues because Paul had that. And then you've got Bob's thing, which is coming more from a sort of uh, a real kind of 70s rock and roll, Johnny Winter sort of boogie blues kind of thing. But then at the same time, a kind of a kind of a prog neoclassical thing, you know, all on paper, none of those elements should work together. I'm actually I'm actually going to differentiate and say that the the demo, the first four songs, I'm going to give that four and a half stars. Um, 
All right. So now they signed with Twin Tone. Um, and the first album, 1981's Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, uh, is released uh, August 7th, 1981. Their, uh, their song I'm in Trouble is released as a single uh, with an outtake, If Only You Were Lonely, uh, rearing its ugly head uh, as far as uh, Paul Westerberg's singer-songwriter uh, uh, inclinations uh, as its B-side. So, um, all right. So let's first talk about, before we even get into this, uh, their legendary live shows, which started to coalesce around this uh, around this time, uh, I am aware of them because there was this guy who used to trade uh, bootleg tapes named Bobby Beatty, and I would have his, his catalog, and there would be all these you know these crazy covers they would do. They were drunk. We didn't have the internet, you know. I mean, we we practically lived in caves. Uh, so these live shows started happening around when Bob. Well, you know, they were basically, they had played a handful of gigs before Peter Jesperson got involved, which were all sort of various types of disasters. When Peter got involved, they had an entree into what was sort of the hip uh, club and the scene in Minneapolis, uh, nominally, or at first, the, the Longhorn, uh, which is where they played their first shows. And then eventually they started playing, uh, there, were, there were a couple other places and when the Longhorn sort of fairly quickly kind of shifted and then closed, they moved over to the 7th Street Entry, which is, you know, part of the First Avenue now uh, complex. So they were playing locally a fair amount uh, in that first year, you know, say May of June of 80, when Peter sort of got them into a real club for the first time. Before that, they'd been playing kind of like sober houses and sober teen dances and things like that, uh, you know, on the floor and some, you know, half half ass setup. But um, once they started gigging, you know, initially they were an opening act, you know, they were sort of Peter's baby. And so they got a certain amount of respect and attention, but they weren't like big time stars out of the box. Uh, you know, that would happen over the course of the next year year and a half, uh, you know, at least in terms of a local uh, renown. But um, so they were playing a lot of opening sets. So the sets were short and tight, uh, except for maybe some in-between song tunage. But they were playing covers pretty early on because, uh, you know, they hadn't written that many songs. It was right. within that first year. Paul would end up writing, you know, God, 40, 50 songs. I mean, that's, that's so, about so what it was. So it was actually a pragmatic decision. It was not born out of drunken, shambolic. No, uh, not not at that point. They weren't really drunken and shambolic. Maybe Speed Fueled those first few years. They didn't have the money or the sort of cachet to get up on stage and start screaming. Yeah, they didn't have that like get guided by voices style beer on stage thing until a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, they probably drank some to get their nerves up to play and, you know, occasionally there might have been some speed involved. But, I mean, you know, the way Paul looked at it, we played so fast, I had to write more songs right. to fill out the set. And until that happened, you know, the first couple of shows, there were a few shows they were doing. And again, you can hear it on that uh, 7th Street entry live from uh, early 81, January of 81, that's on the box set. You know, they're doing multiple Heartbreakers covers. They're doing covers of The Kinks, Syndicate of Sound, you know, all kinds of things like that. Um, and so, and so, you know, it was very quickly they became a, a, a an all original band because Paul was just turning out song after mm. song after song. Another but, thing you mentioned you know, in the book that was interesting um, is that you know early in this why Peter Jasperson was so key is just because he handled a lot of the logistics. If it was up to them to just get gigs and drive themselves there, like they would have probably just fizzled out. <laughs> they had somebody to actually help yeah. them make things happen. Yeah, I mean none of them none of them ever drove or really ever got a driver's license. I think Chris eventually did. I mean, Tommy still doesn't drive. Paul still doesn't drive. Bob never drove. So, you know, from a baseline level. Wait, they of, don't, they uh, still don't drive those guys? 
No, no. that's wild. No. Wow. Keeping it real. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, so, so uh, yeah. And Tommy lived in L.A. for 17 years. He just hitching rides. That'd so, be great if uh, 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 when they did go, go into a car, they insisted on a horse and buggy. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so so there was that part of it. But you know, Peter's influence also came uh, in terms of his record collection. You know, he was a, a total record right. collector, managed a record store. Uh, those guys didn't really have money or exposure. I mean, Paul had an older brother who exposed him to some things, mere folk and blues and bluegrass and that kind of stuff. But in terms of, you know, a hip record collection, Jesperson was the guy that kind of turned him on to a lot of stuff, you know, including Big Star, including like Terry Reed, including, you know, just stuff that was more muso, uh, you know, real knowledgeable record collector would have to turn you on to. Um, So that was all part of it. And part of the stew, I think, of what they were covering to a certain extent, but also the way Paul's songwriting unfolded and, and evolved, you know, was was because he had a, a patron and a champion in Jesperson, but also somebody who had a record collection that he could sort of thumb through and listen to and kind of absorb more influences. Right. So when they go in to make Sorry Ma take out, forgot to take out the trash, um, it was, a, you know, I kind of always assumed that that was just they banging out in a day kind of thing, but it was a fairly lengthy process making that record. Um, yeah, it's it's true more of Stink that that was a one day thing. Right. Uh, but Sorry Ma was, uh, you know. It, it took some time it, it, to get it right. Yeah, I mean, it, Peter, I think, and, and his partner Paul Stark, but Peter in particular saw this as a real opportunity, saw the talent in the band, saw them as, you know, really having something special and being sort of a very fastidious guy, wanted to make sure they got it right. And then there was also the thing, the band had never really been in a recording studio, so they did actually record um, a, a really great sort of audition, essentially, for Paul Stark as a two-track kind of stereo thing, which is on that box right. set. Right, yeah, those are and great. It sounds, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, those are awesome. Uh, and they were so off the cuff and it really felt like more of an audition for Paul and just kind of playing what they would do in the basement that there wasn't any kind of red light fever. But I think when they got into the studio or there was some sense maybe that they would be too uptight in a conventional studio environment. So then they tried recording them uh, and songs for the album live, you know, in a, in, a, in a club without an audience just to kind of have the feel and context that they were used to. But they couldn't really get that right. So they went back into the studio. And by that point, they again you know, this is all happening so fast. By the time Peter meets them, they're together six months. By the time they really start recording the end of the summer, you know, it's closer to a year they've been together and they were just growing as a band exponentially. Paul's songs, the chemistry, them playing out. So by the time they got back into the studio at the end of 80 into early 81 and really started recording what would become that album, um, they were just on fire and, and, and performance-wise and in terms of the material and, yeah, so and those, all that those, sort of stuff. Those first couple attempts at recording, it sort of ended up being as like pre-production for it. By the time yeah, essentially. It, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, if you really look, they started uh, recording, you know, or started, uh, went, went in the studio for the first time July of 80 and the record didn't come out until September <clears throat> of 81. Right. Now, some of that was a delay. But I think basically it was, yeah, it was very unusual, I would say, for a band at that time, at that level. Let's take a look at the songs. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the early songs of, of Paul Westerberg, uh, they hold up, for, for me, just as much as the later stuff, there it's the the motherfucker arrived fully formed. To be perfectly frank with you, Bob, I have not heard the original original stuff before that four song, uh, mm. that four song demo. So right. maybe maybe he still had some uh, influences to grind out the sausage grinder, so to speak. But. Well, it was that, and again, I think he, I think he was somebody who, you know, with a band when they got together, they finally had a purpose, and I think Paul also had a purpose and a direction as a songwriter he's like okay yeah. these are this is these guys strengths i can write these songs short compact sort of brutal 
but melodic. I mean, he always had a sense of melody. Bob, to his credit, also really had a sense of of, of pop melody. You know, right. they were basically grew yeah, up. Yeah, like you know, like Love You Till Friday. That's impossibly catchy. Yeah, and and so I think there's a kind of. Um, in a weird way, there was very little thinking. It was just written for this band for a purpose and out of a kind of inspiration and momentum of them getting together. Yeah, we we have we have a, we have an ultimate playlist where we're going to boil down yeah. the greats, and there's yeah. there's not much from this record that I would keep off. You know, maybe Otto, I bought a headache, I would leave off, but there's I a mean, lot of standards on this record. Yeah, his songs did evolve and change because I think his. Uh, his input, his stimulus, the subject matter grew as he, as the band got on the road and they traveled and they got older and all that kind of stuff. Maturity but killed it, this yeah. band. Maturity, well, I but, suspect, but, foul play. But, uh, but if you look at uh, the, the, you know, just in terms of the construction, in terms of the melodies, in terms of a kind of craft, you know, which you wouldn't necessarily associate with their placements, it's, it's there. It's fairly refined on that first record. And yet it has this kind of, you know, free energy and uh, excitement and rush of discovery as, as they're just getting off as a band. But, you know, Paul was basically, what I'm trying to say is he was a great writer f- from, from, from the get-go, from the jump, and at least a, in, and in particular once he realized and had a purpose and a band that he was writing for. Right. Another thing they had going on already is they sort of have that underdog charm and they have the thing where they're, the songs are kind of about them. They're kind of the mm-hmm. protagonists in the song. Right, so. right. Yeah, I mean, that was because, I mean, that was a matter of uh, just practicality. There wasn't, you know, those guys, they hadn't been traveled. They hadn't done anything. They didn't even have girlfriends at that right. point. So, you know, for Paul, the, the fodder the, for the songs was going to be what was right in front of him. Yeah, what was uh, right in well, front of him a was lot, the band. Listen, a lot of people write what they know, and what they know is fucking dog shit. Uh, <laughs> but, and, and frankly, what Paul Westerberg knows is dog shit, but he's able to relay it so artfully that it's impossible not to connect with it. It's just well, and, and you talk and you talk about the self mythologizing. You know, on that first record, Paul wrote a set of like liner notes, essentially. You know, that were totally taking the piss out of themselves and and yeah. the songs and making fun of it. And 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 also, it's it's in the songs too. You know, uh, to me, you know what the barometer barometer is that he was uh, successfully self mythologizing is that Wilco that Jeff Tweedy wrote a love song to him. Supposedly, I don't know if that's actually true, but you know, it's funny you mentioned Jeff Tweedy. There's a uh, there's a song again on the box set that's this kind of finger picky country thing uh, uh, that that we put on. That's one of Paul's demos from around this time, and you would swear it's Jeff Tweedy, you know. So you kind of invented Jeff Tweedy in that song too. But um, but uh, but yeah. So I think you know, it's uh, like I say, Paul's subject matter changed, the production changed, the music might have changed, the lineups changed. But he was a he was a just a killer writer with a killer pop sensibility and a rock and roll sensibility from from the word go. There's like a levity to this record, kind of a like a sense of humor to it. There there are certain things that definitely seem like kind of parodies of punk rock, like they're you know like they're kind of something like, a husker. Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's that not, was, it's not an angry you know punk rock you know no we're, no we're I mean kick your guys, ass kind of record. <laughs> those guys were those guys were never political. They were yeah. never sort of bought into the dogma of punk. I think the punk part of the band was really more about um, a kind of energy, a kind of uh, drive, a kind of sound, yeah. you know, a kind of, you know, they were, as Paul always said, you know, they, they weren't 
they, they didn't know about punk or, you know, they weren't, they weren't into punk rock, but they were punks. You know, right, they really were right. punks. I think it just, so, it gave them the volition and momentum to be born. And then once yeah. they had used that, it was, it was immediately time to move on. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, as you get into the next record, Stink, he's really almost making fun. It's, it's almost a kind of spoof, a parody. You're right. It gets of, more like of, that of, on Stink. So even, yeah. Yeah. for Sorry Ma, I'm going to go ahead and give this four and a half stars. I okay. gave this the same four and a half. Nice. I hate when uh, we do that. I, I, I would have to, I, you know, having worked on this last box set and really digging into this, it, it, it's amazing how well this record holds up forty years later, forty plus years later. So I would give it, I would give it four and a half stars yeah. to, you know, it's funny. Some people don't get this record. Even people who are replacements fans, they jump on at different points, and this just doesn't connect with them. But I think the people who are, you know, really bone deep replacements fans, they'll, they, you know, love love this record as much as any of you them. You don't have to dock it a half star because you worked on it for false humility. <laughs> if you love it. Okay. Give it a five, five star. Five stars. Then. Okay. The, uh, right, the, cool. the remaster is also real nice. I have to say, they did a great job in the remaster. I have to, you know, I also I saw them um, with, the, with the last tour they did. I think I saw one of their their last shows that they did on the the most recent reunion tour. And they uh, open with taking a ride with uh, Josh Freeze and the drums. It's like just yeah, they were playing nice. a lot of. It's funny how much probably after Tim they were drawing on this album, you know, more than any other. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it just fa- it's, it's, it's very it. pure. <clears throat> um, so I mean, there's the the reissue um, has a whopping like hundred tracks on it or something. The Spotify yeah version. between. Um, the one thing I recommend checking out is the uh, there's a there's a live show from the Seventh Street entry in January '81. That's a pretty good recording of it. It's also filmed if you want to go on YouTube. That's a different, that. actually, oh, those, those are two are different, different shows. shows. Okay. And, yeah. and, then, and then my two cents, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you're not done? No, but, but we're definitely worth checking out that live performance from the, uh, from the, from the recent reissue. So, uh, I enjoyed listening to that a lot. I, I don't think there's anything bad on the box or not worthy of, of listening to, but of particular note, um, besides uh, the show that Joe pointed out, uh, I'd like to posit the theory that the seeds for the all-shook-down era Paul Westerberg had already been planted as far back as 1980 with the home demos where he was trying to be a singer-songwriter on Precise. So, bad worker and you're getting married. Uh, that sort of is the the seeds for All Shook Down. Mm-hmm. Well, and even even if you look at their first single of I'm in Trouble, the B side was uh, yeah, if only, always, if only you're lonely, you yeah. know. So, so and it's, it was uh, always that stuff's majestic, you know. And also, I'm sure he, you know, got uh, I'm sure he got a half on or a full on, knowing that he was <laughs> razzing the punks. <laughs> well, and also, you know, the, the interesting thing about that live show is it'll just show you like kind of like just fury that he was writing with there's like four or five songs that were never recorded and you know and aren't on the first album and even in the 2008 reissues i mean he really there's about 40 almost maybe 40 plus songs that he wrote in the space of you know i want to say six to seven months you know so that's a pretty good uh pretty good clip and they're all really good even some even though some of them you know haven't weren't released until very recently does anybody do this anymore does anybody do the thing where like you play in a band and it's your life and you just live that and you're like you know like kind of no <laughs> not really. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, well, you know, that's kind of, you know, when you look back on it, and, and as I did the book, that was one of the things. It's like uh, the, the opening uh, sort of uh, a quote of the book is jail, death, or janitor. And that was the answer Paul gave when they asked him, right. he said, what would you have done if, if you hadn't formed the replacement? So, yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a kind of all or nothing thing for these guys. And, and even though they ended up having this reputation as being lazy and self-sabotaging and all this stuff and lacking kind of commercial ambition, in that first year, on, in the, particularly on this first record, 
you know, they were really going for it. They really were kind of pretty serious about the band in their own unserious way. Yeah, but they really yeah. put a lot of work into it. No, you work, can tell. Work. Look, I, I, as a 50-year-old, I, I feel like I can tell uh, when a rock band is a put-on a lot more easily than when I was younger. Uh, these guys, you know, I'm f at 50 years old, I throw on the 1980 demos and my heart starts pounding like I was a teenager. So, I mean, right. it's just quite obvious. So 1982, moving right along, we're at Stink. Stink is a 14 and a half minute EP that much more closely aligns with the punk ideology of the time. Uh, and I, I'm not really sure if this is um, their, their attempt to, to fit into the punk hierarchy of the time or more likely just tossing the, uh, the idiots a tiny little bone before moving on. Uh, either way, as far as I'm concerned, it amounts to something of a minor release, in my view. Uh, the three songs that, are, that leap out to me as being worthy of, uh, of being salvaged on our hallowed playlist are Kids Don't Follow, Go, and Gimme Noise. Uh, otherwise, uh, the, the rest of them just seem like uh, toss-away punk songs. Well, yeah, again, like uh, Kids Don't Follow was really the impetus for doing this EP. It was it happened in the recording. And that was it. That was a U2 Raz, right? So, yeah, in a of, way, yeah. Yeah. In, a, in a way. But I mean, it was such an outstanding song. You know, when he played live, it is. Jesperson was like, we got to record this. And he had a few other things. And so they thought, well, let's just do an EP, even though it kind of didn't make any sense in terms of the timing. But that's why they, he did a deal with Paul Stark. He said, oh, I'll fund the recording, but you got to hand stamp the jackets uh, because we have to save money because we just put a record by these guys. And, you know, we yeah, hadn't, hadn't recouped hadn't, it. Right. Hadn't recouped it. Right. Um, I think, you know, Go is probably, uh, other than If Only You Were Lonely, the other song that really kind of indicates that Paul's songwriting is going to yeah. go off in really interesting totally. directions. One of their best um, deep cuts, for sure. And, and then, you know, the other stuff that's on there, again, it, it was, Paul was reacting to what was right in front of him yeah. in that first year. I mean, it's, started... it's, it's middling. As far as Paul goes, it's middling. I'm, I'm guessing if I asked him today, he would agree. There's... Well, he'd probably think all of his stuff is middling or, or <laughs> terrible. But, you know, but, but, but it was, again, they were playing a lot of hardcore shows, and Minneapolis was going pretty hardcore at that time. They were on the road a lot with Husker Du and playing hardcore stuff. And so, in a way, they were trying to keep up, but then also making fun of, of, of the They're genre. trying to have their cake and eat it, too. Yeah, yeah and, then they, and, and it was almost like, all right, we've done this, and now we're moving on. And, and I really think that it was kind of, you know, it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, and in, in, a, in a way, it's their kind of funny pastiches of hardcore songs, right. you know, other than the few real standouts. I kind of enjoyed this one more this time than I had in the past. I guess putting it in context with what they what they had done before and after, this does seem like they're kind of like, you know, uh, kind of having more fun with it and, and kind of d taking some more, like, extreme, like, parody, kind of, like, fuck school, that song, think, for instance. You think it's taking the piss? Though? Yeah, sort of. I think so, yeah. I think they're, you know, it's like, I, I have a real soft spot for, like, snotty teenage punk like songs like fuck school it reminded me a little bit of the band void the dc band void i don't know if you know them um the, you know, like just making a crazy teenage racket i i feel like i kind of liked half of this record um there's not that many songs yeah i do it. too i mean i like three songs out of eight so yeah. i gave it i gave it three stars and i found it to be a little bit of a pleasant surprise i give it two and a half and you can already see, like on the in the uh, deluxe edition that came out in two thousand eight, some of the other songs around this time that they were doing, in, you know, including covers, were like "Hey, Good Looking" by Hank Williams. Yeah, and "Rock Around the, the Clock." clock. I'll so tell you, you know, one, one song I never need to hear again ever is "Rock." <laughs> but you know, the they clock. were already uh, getting to the point where they were tired of playing for these dogmatically punk hardcore audiences, and yeah, so yeah. this was sort of them passing through that world and onto other things. Yeah. What What do you give this? 
Uh, I guess you have to give it a three because I think Kids Don't Fall is one of his best songs, and I think yeah, Go is. Is, is, is a great song as well. Which one, But Go? again, yeah, Go and yeah. Kids Don't Fall are great, <clears throat> and... Uh, you know, and fuck, fuck school in its own reductive way is kind of genius, yeah, too. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely kind of this, the slightest entry in their catalog, but a, a kind of necessary, uh, you know, a bridge to cross. Yeah, it's them. interesting in the arc to see it. It's kind of like the guy at the party who says goodbye, and then five minutes later he comes back in the room and says goodbye again, and you're like, what the fuck <laughs> is this guy saying goodbye? So um, anyway, phase two, stretching out in a million directions at once, 1983 to 1984. By the way, if you have any problem with these designations, Bob, please attack me. 1983, Hoot Nanny. That's where we're starting here. So this is uh, often regarded, and you know, fairly uh, as well, as the first release on, on which the replacements started to branch out and really, really completely shedding the punk, uh, the punk label that had characterized earlier stuff. Uh, there's all kinds of shit on this. There's rockabilly, blues, country, Beatles, pastiche, uh, hardcore. I mean, you name it. Uh, you know, Bob, why don't you take us on the genesis of how Paul felt comfortable enough to just, you know, f fly off the cliff with great abandon? Yeah, I mean, I think his his feeling was, you know, if you stand still in one place too long, they can hit you with a bottle. So it was always to keep moving. And I think, but this is moving way, in every direction at once. That's a, it's a well, yeah, and and I and I think that that the sense of a lot of that was coming out of this what for them had become this kind of weird straitjacket of playing with these other punk bands and being in this very, you know, hardcore turning scene. Uh, and so they decided, you know, screw that. I mean, that was their sort of want and their attitude was to sort of be uh, defiant of whatever they were sort of <laughs> being sort of uh, what was being thrust upon them. And so what is, uh, you know, what's less punk than doing anything and everything, you know what I mean? Or at least punk at that time. I mean, the whole idea with punk was to do what you wanted and, uh, you know, this yeah, sort of, but yeah, not, I mean, Everyone was cognizant that there was a very strict hierarchy involved. Right, in being a right. Punk. Yeah. So I think, and, and I think all those things that you hear on Hoot Nanny are very genuine. I mean, it's Hoot Nanny's a little bit of a hodgepodge. There's like things like Run It is, is almost a holdover from uh, yeah. from from Stink, uh, but you know, there's there's you know, Drum Machine songs is within your reach. There's uh, really, I think, Paul's. I want to say his first great song, but the first great song that would become very Westerbergian is well, Color Me Impressed. Yeah. For sure. That's um, the first it, like kind of replacement song. Right. And, and yet there's total like, you want to talk about Dr. Demento jokes, you know, Hootenanny. Right. Uh, you know, right, <laughs> yeah. which they started the album, which is them switching instruments in the studio. And so a lot of it had to do with Paul's after making the first two records at Blackberry Way Studio. Every song's got a sort of a joke or a thing about it, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, love lines. Um, yeah, but, love lines. Hill. Little, yeah. I mean, everything's yeah. got its th its little hook of what it yeah. what it does and contributes, and yeah. it's not a perfect record, but it's like a, a sort of El Elmer's glue and popsicle sticks version of what was to come, right? Yeah, and it, it, I think it's a dry run for you know, kind of that. You know, it's basically it's the first. If we're going to talk about the sort of classic replacements, it's the first classic replacements record, but in a kind of embryonic way. Yeah, right. Totally. In that, in that they can sort of do anything and everything, and you know, you've got a band that can do something as deep and emotional and and sort of thoughtful as within your reach, but they're also doing you know hoot nanny, uh, and it also shows like the adventure or treatment bound, you know, making fun of themselves again, more self mythology or things like color me impressed, which is that sweet spot of Paul sort of. You know, it's like I say, the 
a kind of Westerbergian view of, of the world and of songwriting and of songcraft and melody. It's all there. Uh, and then, you know, there's there's weird things on the fringes, too. You know, bluesy stuff. Take Me Down to the Hospital, where they're still kind of furious. They're still rock and yeah, roll yeah. band. Uh, and, and also and Heyday. So Heyday's in the same, hey, in the same mold. Heyday's. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's like them kind of figuring out really who and what they are. Even though, you know, I think the first album was 100% who they were in that moment. I think the band was evolving very quickly, and I think they were all sort of, um, you know, finding out things about themselves, and I think, and their tastes and what they wanted to do. And, you know, it's like anything. You do something once, okay, you do it twice. By the time they get to 83 in this record, uh, it's sort of like, you know, we can try anything, we can do anything. This is not the perfect iteration of this phase of the replay. I mean, there's there's definitely flaws, mainly that side two sharply falls off. I have a particular affection for this record in a way because it's sort of like, it has some of my favorite songs, but and even as an album, I think it gets overlooked because of what comes after, you know, in the in the next couple of three records or yeah, so. Yeah, if you look at this, you know, the next th- this record and the next two as kind of similar in a way, mm-hmm. they're they're kind of like you know this set the tone. Yeah, this set the tone for the next two, and then they made records that were kind of like this the next two times out. But I think they got the formula. They figured out what worked. They had that. They you know they kept the things that worked and kind of moved the, on the cool, from the ideas that didn't. The cool thing is there's a slew of throwaways, but every single throw way is awesome so uh, not everything's going to be on our playlist it's worth hearing this one all the way through though as a record it's an embarrassment of riches it's definitely a dry run for let it be it's one of their more overlooked albums and the real turning point for them is this record i give it four stars I give this in three and a half, um, and, but I, I I also like it quite a lot. Yeah, I, I, I give it four stars too, and I think uh, you know again, like you say, it's funny. It's, it sets up Let It Be, it sets up Tim. But even if you go as late as Please to Meet Me, and you look at the different types of things that are on sure, Please to Meet Me, the different, it's, it's almost it's like a weird smor- mirror it's that image. Smorgasbord thing. Yeah. yeah, they just got better at and and sharper at doing it. You know, and there was more money and more budget and all that stuff. But yeah. I think this is this is the template in in a way for the that classic. You know, whatever three four album will run all right so bob this is a long time coming all right let me give you just a tiny bit of backstory so friend of the pod and one of my best friends rick kronberg uh he's the one who actually purchased trouble boys for me he reached out to you on twitter a while ago and asked you the following question and it's actually a really good question you then liked the question which it's just horrifying. Uh, So now we're going to get it out there in the open because it's a very incisive question that's going to lead us into Let It Be. Oh, boy. During the making of Let It Be, one of the albums with the most attitude ever, were all four band members living at home with their parents at the time? Uh, Yes. That's the greatest fact in the world. (laughs) Yes. uh, I think Paul Paul was probably, even though he's technically still living with his parents, by the next record, his girlfriend had moved to town and he was mostly staying at her place. Uh, Bob had not yet moved out. Tommy had not yet moved out. I don't think Chris moved out. So, yes, they were all living at home. I mean, they didn't really, none of them other than Bob worked. And, you know, you really couldn't make much of a living uh, you know, and they were on the road probably by that point. So I think by by 85, they were all by 85, they were all out. But by 84, and certainly fall of 83, when they were making uh, Let It Be, uh, they were all at home. Yeah, I'm almost positive. Man, does that inform the sensibility of this record? It really, really seems to. Um, so uh, how so much- they had done, by this point, they had done a little bit of touring. They got a van, and they were kind of out on the yeah, circuit. They, 
they they were they were doing you know regional stuff on the first couple records. They went as far as Lawrence, Kansas, by '82. Nice. But you know, Tommy was still in school. He didn't quit school until the the spring of '83. So they really couldn't do any kind of what you would call. You're national talking about touring. elementary school, right? <laughs> uh, uh, at that point, it would have been a ninth grade, I believe, or tenth grade. He quit. But yeah, so so there was a kind of logistical reality. It was mostly fairly limited touring through uh, right up until the release of Hoot Nanny. And when as Hoot Nanny was about to come out, just before that, they did their first you know East Coast tour, played New York City for the first time, and so then. That actually is a huge, you want to talk about impact on, on Let It Be. I think that had probably the biggest impact in that for the first time in their life. You know, none of those guys had ever been to New York before the replacement set foot there. You know, right. so they're seeing the world. They're seeing, you know, at least the United States or parts of it. Um, they're meeting people. They're being, sort of being embraced in scenes like in Boston and in L.A. Right. and all that sort of stuff. So their world really kind of opens up, as does, I think, the subject matter, not only looking outward, but I think it allows Paul, you know, being having this exposure to other things. He's also looking inward even more effectively when you think of things like Unsatisfied or 16 Blue, which is kind of about Tommy. And so, right. so I think the touring that happened in the nine months or the really the six months uh, before they started making this, and so that would have been the window that Paul was writing most of the songs for this record, really is kind of... Uh, is 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 the is another sort of turning point or another kind of element in 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 the way the records are sounding. Right. Now coming into this record too, they had also uh, received a lot of critical acclaim uh, for both the debut and Hootenanny. They were both like you know. I mean, uh, on a certain level, I, mean, I don't think they'd had a single real national write up that didn't really come into uh, like. Chris, yeah, Chris, Chris Gow kind of gave them Chris a shout out. Chris Gow gave him a shout out. In fact, I think Lester Bangs one of the last things he wrote. He one of the last things Lester ever wrote. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, it was great, and certainly was huge bigger than any you know their expectations were pretty low and so i mean it wasn't like they expected to be on the cover of magazines at that point i mean that just wasn't in the cards at that point do you feel like um, there was some sense of anticipation for let it be um when that was yes yeah yes and part of that was because there was uh it took a while for it to come out Uh, again you know twin tone was a kind of small operation they they had had to wait you know six months for for uh, for the first record to come out because Twin Toe needed to have multiple releases to kind of get a better deal on the manufacturing. And so, uh, so that was always the case. And by, by the time of Let It Be, you know, because they toured and continued touring even as they were sort of waiting for the record to come out, uh, yeah, the, the underground press, certainly, the alternative weeklies, that kind of press was building. They had, you know, got, done a run. And so they were starting to buzz. And, and then that kind of elongated uh, period until Let It Be came out kind of was the thing. Because by the time Let It Be came out, obviously, uh, in the fall, September, October of, of 84, uh, that's when things, you know, in the next few months would just kind of explode for the band. You know, this is one of those very rare records for me that... Uh, when I listen to it, it's got it's it really gets inside the head of somebody who is you know a, a boy at that age, and I heard it at that age, and it connected with with me in a way that's um, you know it's not really rep, replicable. Uh, but when I listen to it, I can actually you know I can put myself. It feels like I can put myself in the in the body of well, that person. The magic of it, kind of, is Westerberg by this point is what he's like maybe twenty five or something. Yeah. So he's writing these songs that are kind of like teenage heartbreak sort of songs, but he's got a little bit of perspective and distance from it because he's a little bit older. So he, you know, he's kind of like a mature, grown man. <laughs> but yet he's not writing with distance. He's writing. Yeah, with no, it's I mean, but empathetic. But I think there is. A, there, there, I think it's both. I think I, this music, like this, the, in a lot of songs, this record like appealed to me a lot at the. At, in my mid twenties, 
the same age as when he was writing these. So I can kind of see that connection, that, that sort of, you Yeah, know. And, I, and I think he viewed it as a kind of, it was for the most part recorded in the fall as, as a kind of autumnal record. He always sort of compared right. it to the kind of their beggar's banquet mm-hmm. in a weird way, which you can almost see. Sure. Uh, I think also his songwriting was becoming more... Um, Influenced by pop and indie pop stuff. And, you know, Robin Hitchcock, I Often Dream of Trains, was a big record what a great uh, around that time, although th- this might have been after. But, you know, he was just getting into some different things. And I think he had been so um, blues and sort of blues-influenced and Stones-influenced early on. Uh, that's always in a lot of the way, the, the, the approaches and constructions of his songs. By this point, I think it's it's evolving a little bit, and he's almost going back to some of his earlier kind of childhood folky kind of influences right. uh, and and merging that with the pop stuff. So it's it's pretty interesting. It's, it is uh, one of those records where there's, again, it, it's it's a, a more refined version of the template on Hootenanny in terms of the kind of variety of things you're getting on there. There's jokey songs. There's obviously the Kiss cover. How, seri- how serious were they at uh, you consider Peter Buck as a producer for the entire thing. Well, uh, Buck wasn't a producer actually. For the record, uh, he just played on uh, on "I Will Dare." I, I had, know, I know, but but he was rumored to uh, to have been one, to have been desired to produce the record. Yeah, yeah, there was a talk of him like producing it, and I think that was more Peter's Peter Jesperson's kind of input. He wanted uh, maybe Buck to produce, but I think at that point Jesperson and and Paul were really kind of clicking. Probably this is probably the height of their. You know, collaboration. I guess mm-hmm. you would, and, and Peter encouraging uh, Paul, uh, Jesperson encouraging Paul, and so he's taking a lot of chances. I think on this record that you know really only hinted at before. Again, like you say, go or within your reach. I mean, there's songs on here between uh, you know androgynous and unsatisfied and sixteen blue and even answering machine. They're kind of you know they're not straight ahead replacement songs, uh, at least, you know, in, in the, or things that maybe Bob necessarily would have a place to shine on even, um, even though he does shine and, and, and finds his, finds his way. So I think it was, uh, you know, the combination of the travel, the touring, the different influences in terms of what they were seeing and experiencing and hearing also, uh, uh combined with, uh, you know, Jesperson, and and to a certain extent REM because that they were in each other's pockets around this time eighty three and into eighty four, um, so I think you know the, it's just there's a lot going on in Paul's world and Paul's life that I think comes out on this record in a in a fairly unique way that he doesn't exactly duplicate again. Yeah, mm-hmm. the opening line of the record is uh, really sets the uh, the tone. How how old are how how young are you? How old am I? Let's count the rings around my eyes. Still one of the best opening lines ever, and it is one of those ones that it kind of it tips it tips his hand that he is a little bit older, right? It's, it's yeah, like it's somebody that's younger than him he's singing to. Um, I, the, the I mean, you hear that "I will dare" anywhere on any sort of like club PA or in any setting. It just sounds so great when it kicks in. The funny always thing, sounds great. The funny thing about that song is it's them doing REM better than REM in a yeah. lot in a lot of senses. And it, it's funny too because I think like with a lot of bands. Uh, you know those uh, the first few records they were homebound you know they were in town mostly mm-hmm. they weren't touring and so a lot of the songs got developed as a band you know what i mean uh, right. the, 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 because they were rehearsing more they were uh, they weren't you know on the road as much i think by this point they're 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 on the road more and so the band stuff starts to become less it's a lot of the, paul developing ideas and then bringing it to the band right, you know right, uh, right. and even though there's a bunch of co-writes and co-credits on here those are the kind of obvious things favorite thing we're 
coming out. Tommy gets his tonsils out. Uh, even Gary's got a boner. But then the, the the stuff that really stands out on this, like An Unsatisfied, A 16 Blue, and Answer Machine, those are kind of songs that Paul is working on before he brings to the band. So I think, again, when I say the road sort of influenced them, it also influenced the way they were writing. And that's something that would kind of carry on, you know, as they grew and had more commitments and were on the road. It changed just the dynamics of, of developing the songs, you know. All right, so let me, I, I, I got to ask something because it's, <clears throat> again, part of that sort of uh, vague self-mythologizing, you know, what really is the answer here. So uh, Westerberg says uh, we were going to call the album Whistler's Mammy, and then we were going to call it Stunk, and then we decided that the next song that came on the radio is going to be the album title. Next thing you know, when I find myself in times of trouble comes on the radio, the reference is partially intended as a joke on, apparently, on Jesperson, who was a big Beatles fan, so. Yep, uh, that's, that's, that's all true, and uh, I and, think it And apparently the, the next record was gonna be called Let It Bleed. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so the question to me is, you know, this is one of the greatest albums of all time. It, that's not an opinion, that's simply objective fact. So, and one of the greatest album covers, too, I think. One of the, again, again, with the mythology, right? So, right? so here's a guy who's saying that we gave it this tossed-off title. Wasn't he quite cognizant that he was plugging into, uh, you know, plugging into rocket history? I mean, he's making well, one of the greats. He knew how good it was. Yeah, but there's that. But at the same time, he's also taking the piss out of the Beatles. Like, who who names an album out at that point? You know, after a Beatles album, it's a kind of such a such an act of sort of ridiculous rebellion that you almost have to sort of admire it. And so I think he knew what he was doing in that sense. Right, right. Uh, I think they knew. You know, they they knew all along they were a really good band. And I think this is the album probably where the the sort of combination of where the band was at, where his songwriting was at, where the production. Uh, was at too all kind of came together and that's why I think it's you know universally probably or generally uh, most often considered their best album um, and again I, I, I do think the, the iconography of the cover has a lot to do with that if, so the, se- if the sequencing is really key the sequencing yes. is great because they really parcel out the great songs and they the, yep. the, the, the ones that are kind of the, the jokier like Black Diamond for instance in between androgynous and unsatisfied it, right. it really just works there. It's kind of like a little table setter. And it's like, a, you know, Black Diamond is actually kind of a pretty good song. Right. <laughs> and and it's like it, it, could, it could be a replacement song. You know, it wouldn't really be that out of place if they had written it. And then when Unsatisfied kicks in, it's, it's just such yeah. a lift from that. This, and then it's they, really amazing and, sequence. And then you got Senior Video, which in, in its own ways is just an incredible it's song, too. Like, song. I love that. But when then, the vo- and then, that vocal kicks in, it's just yeah, like yeah, and, then, and, and, and that comes after Unsatisfied. And that right. one-two punch, those always, they always were connected in my mind as the two that went together. Right, but then they're keeping you on your toes because then they got Gary's Got a Boner and then Into 16 Blue and Answer Machine. So I want to like, ask you a you know, question. This has been <laughs> killing me. Sure. Have you ever met anybody whose favorite song from this album was Gary's Got a Boner? <laughs> <laughs> I need to know. Uh, the, you know the, the, the joke was that Paul said, you know, we say, why'd you call? I mean, there's so many stories about who this is about or what it's about. But his thing was just we always thought guys named Gary were, you know, ridiculous. It just seemed like there was always dumb guys. And of course, later on, <laughs> one of their managers was named Gary. And the reverend that married Paul was named Gary. So it's kind of, <laughs> nice, sort of funny. Nice, <laughs> nice. Unsatisfied is basically just like one long, giant, great hook that like yeah. occasionally takes a break to not be the hook for a second and then goes back to the amazing hook. Like that's such a great song. I, mm. My my two favorites after a lifetime of deliberation of decades are 16 Blue, which to me nails being an adolescent. It absolutely nails it. 
on the head and my favorite song by the replacements which has always been favorite thing right that's a great right? song yeah yeah no i mean it's there's 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 a lot of interesting stuff on this record and the way they execute it and i think it's uh, in its own way it's really the last album where bob is completely integrated and involved in, 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 in the band. It's the last record they cut with him, you know, as a band, the, the mm-hmm. next record, they really cut the rhythm tracks as a three piece and Bob came in afterwards. So I think it is a kind of peak moment, uh, that people have recognized for a lot of those reasons. It's just, you know, you, you only reach, there's only one peak for most bands. I think they had several, but right. I think this oh, was yeah. a, a kind of peak for, for that first iteration of, the I really and, think their whole, you know, their whole career was one big series of different peaks. Right. Yes, very much you so. You know, like yeah. the Velvet Underground. I mean, it's the same kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, this one is pretty much like consensus, one of the best records of the 80s. I mean, it's it's certainly in the top, like, five. You know, it's, yeah. it's definitely one of the best records of the decade. Um, yeah. And, you know, they're kind of their legacy stamping record. Uh, five stars. Five stars. Yeah, five stars for me, uh, too. I, Bob, I thought you were going to lay down a two-star thing. <laughs> he was think- I think he was thinking about five and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I do want to mention one outtake. Uh, sure. per- perfectly lethal could very well have been on the record. I think it's a great song. Yeah, and they were they were also toying with uh, switching out the kit. They were gonna always gonna do a cover on this record, but they, uh, originally it was gonna be like maybe Temptation Eyes, I think, which you know it has come out on on uh, expanded versions and stuff. And of course, Heartbeat, it's a love beat, which was you know a, a bubblegum pop song from the seventies that Paul yeah, loved. But I think they family. made the right I think they made the right choice in terms of Black Diamond because it, it's just uh, you have to remember that was in the days where people wouldn't you know, hip indie alternative underground bands covering Kiss actually was kind of a weird thing to do and to cover it, not ironically, but, you know, really take, that's the thing about Paul and Bob is like a good song was a good song was a good song. You know, they came up in the era where, you know, they listened to a lot of AM gold and bubblegum pop and they love that stuff as much as they loved. And they chose the right band because, you know, again, that ties into the Kiss army. It ties into adolescent culture and, you know, that dictators, you know, sort of junk culture thing as, as holy fantasy yeah, I mean, that that was a big thing. And they take, you know, I think R.J. Smith wrote it in his Village Voice profile in 84. It's like they took kind of this detritus in the 70s that they genuinely loved and kind of transformed it into this thing that, you know, maybe people who didn't appreciate it could understand it. I mean, that's probably for a lot of people the only Kiss song they've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> maybe is, is Black Diamond by The Replacement. So. Right. All right, that concludes part one of our interview with Bob Mayer and our discussion about the first phase of The Replacement's career. That was a fucking blast. Yeah. Um, None of the adulty shit that looms uh, up ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have part two next week when we discuss um, everything from their signing with Sire and making Tim. Find out what happens when a, a bunch of drunken ne'er-do-wells signs with a major label. <laughs> yeah. Answer more of the same stuff, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely check it, check it out. It's going to be uh, an amazing good time. Uh, you know, do all the things that one should do which is to subscribe to this podcast, give five-star reviews uh, on Spotify, definitely rated five. It helps us. At this early stage, even though we have dozens of, uh, of uh, incredible shows and amazing content we're putting up regularly, we really need help. Yeah, and word of mouth is our favorite. Word of mouth is great. It costs you nothing. That's our absolute to favorite. To brighten somebody's day with, a, with an episode that you vetted to be of top quality. You know, music fan who nerds out on stuff. Just send it on through. There's tons of great ones. I can tell you my faves. You can tell me yours. Let's meet in the middle 
send everything to everyone. Right. I also want to reiterate that it's a good idea to just send us money. We'll accept it. We need help. We need support. We're not asking for much. Just everything. Right. Thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next week when we delve to the bottom of that pool of, re- of uh, replacements vomit, uh, the pool of which they have filled to the brim and overlapping. <laughs> oh, that was kind of a circuitous path to that there. Sorry. All right. <laughs> see you. We'll see you next time on Discography. Discography.